a lot of reporting is charm, disarm, get people to tell you stuff that could get them fired, right? A lot of business is charm, understand their problems, and find a pathway for them to feel like you're going to help them, right? And so... Welcome to The Rebooting Show. I'm Brian Morrissey. Each week, I have a conversation with those building sustainable media businesses. This week's episode is supported by Curve Interactive, an AI-powered video creative technology that creates shoppable and immersive experiences within any video content. Curve is the only platform that uses machine learning techniques and AI to recognize depth, dimension, and objects within any video in real time, and more accurately than the human eye. This allows publishers to use Curve to monetize their inventory by automating shoppable connections between consumers, content, and commerce. Curve can power shoppability within streaming content, enabling consumers to pause their favorite shows and shop the scene. You can check this out, and I'll leave it in the show notes with a activation that Curve did with NBCU for its must-shop TV. Curve's technology also provides real-time insights into viewer behavior and engagement, which can empower creative teams with new data to optimize campaigns quickly and easily for maximum impact. To learn more, visit curveit.com. That is K-E-R-V-I-T.com. Thanks so much to Curve. They've been great partners and supporters over the last several weeks, and we're actually doing quite a bit in Cannes that I'll tell you about in a few minutes. You know, I regularly talk to people about what they're seeing in the market and who they're impressed with as media businesses. I just asked this on a podcast a few weeks ago with Sean Griffey, and that's actually led to this podcast episode. You know, there's so much doom and gloom about the future of the media business, and much of it is warranted, let's face it. But there are examples of those building and not just growing media businesses, but also ones with resiliency. Often these publications look quite different from the previous era, which was often about big and generalist publications, because when you're optimizing to unique visitors and page views, you're going to cast as big a net as possible. And I think that was clearly a mistake, at least in retrospect. The future of media, in my view, is smaller, it's more focused, and it is more about relentless execution and not big, airy slogans about unbreaking journalism or any of that. And I can't think of a publication that's executed as well recently as Punchbowl News. Started by veterans of Politico, Punchbowl relentlessly focuses on Capitol Hill and the sausage making that is the American legislative process. The action during the Trump year shifted inexorably to the White House. It was the Trump show after all. But the Capitol is where the story always turns. Just see the recent debt ceiling crisis. Anna Palmer is a journalist turned startup CEO. Along with Jake Sherman and John Bresnahan, she founded Punchbowl in January 2021, just in time for the assault on the Capitol. Punchbowl's obsessive focus on the Capitol and its business model that combines subscriptions with high-value issue advocacy ads led it to sprint out of the gates with a $10 million in revenue mark in its first year. And is more reticent about its current revenue pace, which is no fun, let's be real here. But by all measures, what Punchbowl is doing is working. Here's some things that stand out to me about Punchbowl. One is that it's reporter focused, and I believe journalists who start media businesses create far different products. Punchbowl is very journalism driven, relying on the daily grind of uncovering new information, 
versus playing SEO and social traffic games. Two, it has a rich niche. Issue advocacy ads are a lucrative ad category, and one where you not only don't compete with Google and Facebook, but often they're your biggest clients, if only more of the media business was like this. Three, it stayed lean and focused. Punchbowl started with funding from LionTree, and it has grown quickly, but has also resisted the temptation to expand too quickly by, say, springing up operations in state capitals around the country or joining the fray at the White House. Instead, it has focused on high-value areas for expansion, like its recent move into financial services with the vertical The Vault. Lastly, it has managed to be a publication about politics without being a political publication. Now, many aspire to nonpartisan news, whatever that means, and that's easier said than done. I mean, see the Chris Licht experiment at CNN for evidence. Punchbowl has managed to thread the needle for the most part without being pulled into the inevitable political Rorschach test because it's obsessed with the legislative process versus the posturing part of politics that too much of the news focuses on. A quick note on the podcast, next week we'll be bringing to you a series of daily live recorded podcasts from the Cannes Lions Festival. We partnered with Curve to do an event there called the New Attention Economy. And we have something like 30 great speakers over the course of three days. And so if you are in Cannes, please do join us for that. You can sign up in the show notes. And some of these conversations we're going to bring to you here as podcast episodes. I'll have guests like Group M CEO, Kirk McDonald, her CRO, Lisa Howard, Bloomberg CRO, Christine Cook, and Semaphore Editor-in-Chief Ben Smith in conversation with Puck COO. Liz Goff, and there's many other great ones, and I hope to turn many of them into podcasts that I hope you will enjoy. But please do send me feedback about this podcast, things you'd like to hear, things you want to hear less of. My email is brian at therebooting.com. Also, please leave a rating and review of this podcast. This is a great way to get people to discover the show, and I really appreciate your help in doing that. Now, here's my conversation with Anna. Anna, thank you so much for joining me. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. So I always try to ask because people say, oh, you're negative and all this sort of thing. But I'm like, I'm really not. I just like I'm a weather forecaster when like it always rains. I don't know. I'm a weather forecaster in Seattle and, you know, it rains a lot. But I actually like sunshine like anyone else. And I try to ask people like, well, who are people you think are doing a good job or just from the outside? Because you never know on the inside are, you know, you think that they're really executing really well. And Punchbowl always comes up. And it just did. I was just out in Washington, D.C., and I asked this question of Sean Griffey, previous podcast, and he brought he brought up Punchbowl. We appreciate it. That's always good to hear. Okay. Is it true? <laughs> so Punchbowl News is two and a half years old. We benefit from the fact that we are a COVID startup, right? So it wasn't as if it was the Trump sugar high of advertising and I think most people thought we were crazy. And we've been really focused on what we do. I think we're super ambitious, which I think has surprised people about kind of how quickly we've become successful. You know, I mean, we were profitable in our first year. And so we continue to be very focused, but also really excited about the future. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if I would have been surprised. I mean, both you and Jake Sherman, who had been on this podcast before, we're writing playbook, an incredibly successful franchise at Politico, and you clearly saw how successful it was. And John Bresnahan, obviously, has a long, long history. So, I mean, you guys had chops. And, but I think what was interesting to me when I had 
Jake on here was how the business had gone. So I always think, you know, people say advertising is a terrible business and stuff. Well, let's let's define advertising because there's a lot of different types of advertising. And the type of advertising that Punchbowl specializes in is a great area. Explain for those who don't know, like how, and we'll get into the subscriptions, but mm -hmm. just explain this particular area of advertising. I don't even know if it's advertising anymore. Yes. I mean, I, so I've been in Washington journalism for almost 20 years and I always laugh when everyone talks about Substack and the rise of newsletters and it's like the new hot thing. I mean, I've literally been doing newsletters for that entire time. The only thing that has changed is the news cycle has sped up. So I started in a very niche publication called Influence About the Money of Lobbying that came out every other week. Fast forward, we now are on a three times a day newsletter. But the reason why there is so much money here in Washington is because the business of Washington never goes away. Massive corporations are making huge bets around regulation, right? And so even if there is a presidential year, which you think, oh, that's a bad time to be in Washington because nothing's happening on the legislative calendar, these are 10, 15, 20 year fights that go on. And so there is a kind of a steady stream of just overall corporate, you know, industry wanting to influence what happens here. And so I think we provide the vehicle for which they can get to the most premium audience that they want, which is yeah. the leadership in Congress and those at the White House. Yeah. And there's only so much you can spend on lobbyists, right? And the the size of the government is, I, I have reference before I lived in Washington for like a couple of years out, out, out of college. And, you know, I was only making like $30,000 a year, so I wouldn't have bought that place there. But if I did, it would be worth a lot more. And, you know, that's because the size of the government has gotten quite a bit larger and it's going to get even bigger because I think both sides don't agree on much. But, but one of the things they agree on in some ways, in different ways, is that, you know, the government is going to be more involved in the economy in different ways. And I think that's, if you look at the bills that are passing, like industrial policy, I always thought the U.S. was not a really an industrial policy thing, always seemed a very European approach, but we're there now. So and, that's a great field to be in. Yeah. And I mean, even if you think about like, you know, Washington used to be a cost center for a lot of these companies coming out of COVID, coming out of some of these kind of massive, massive packages, all of a sudden, I think a lot of companies that maybe were skeptical of Washington now realize that playing there and having a reputation here makes a big difference. Yeah. And I can remember just in covering the technology companies, right? And I, I covered the sort of rise of Google, right? And before the IPO, I'm like dating myself quite a bit here. And, you know, Google got caught flat footed when yeah. Microsoft turned their like lobbying apparatus against Google to say, hey, you know, they're, they're developing a dominant position. And Google is like, oh man, because they were taking the Silicon Valley view of like, you know, we're inventing the future. The people who try to influence government are, you know, they're just like the old guard. Well, Microsoft had a near-death experience in the 90s, right. so they had right. an apparatus up and running. And now, I think with AI, it's a totally different game now because it is going to be, they're asking to be regulated. And so, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to tell you where to expand to. I would get in there. <laughs> first, Definitely first time in my uh, career where you have an industry who's very nascent saying, come and regulate us, you know, typically much more like the Silicon Valley world where they think they're changing the world and, you know, Washington's never going to come for them. What I always yeah. say is maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but Washington eventually comes. Yeah. 
but it's also it's a mature it's a matured industry really and you know anytime anyone asks for regulation they're just asking to be protected from competition at least in my view i mean like the incumbents always benefit and particularly with these large language models scale this is one area where scale it's not like a lot of media scale is a tremendous advantage <laughs> so you we're now like two and a half years in as I said, you know, from the outside, I think it's been like tremendously successful. So give me the sort of report card from your standpoint. I assume you'll give yourself pretty good grades, but it's, it's been a good two years. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you started and and I remember talking with Jake. I mean, you'd gotten to it in year two, I believe it was like 10 million in revenue. I think the mix might have been different than you than, than you had expected. Probably more upside on on the ad front. I know when you launched, it was more about at least it was it was marketed more about the membership and subscription, but the ads have done tremendously. Yeah, so I think we did ten million in our first year of of, of business. Wow. See, I'm even like my God. We did significantly more in our second year, and we're on track in our third year to continue to kind of year over year. We're very confident about kind of the future of the business. I think partly the programmatic ads came. You know, we were. I think people kind of forget because you know it almost feels like we're just in the lifeblood of Washington yeah. now. But when we started, you know, we didn't have a list. We didn't have all these things. So we kind of were building really for people, really small, kind of the opposite model that you see so many other media startups do, which is they raise a ton of money. They raise, they hire all these people and then they like kind of try to find the business model. I'm not a traditional CEO. And so I had been in kind of this Washington journalism space for a long time, but it was much more of like, let's figure out what's going to work and what isn't. And so programmatic ads, we always knew we were going to be, which is like the big ads, with all the companies that want to use newsletters to get in front of their eyeballs, you know, of, of the really important people. And so that started and but we kind of undercut the market in some ways where, you know, I we knew what everybody else was selling theirs for. And so we said, take a chance on us, like we'll, we'll kind of build together. And so we benefited, I think, from the fact that Axios had broken off a couple of years, you know, obviously five years before we did. And so there were companies and consultants who had taken a chance on Axios and had, you know, been proven right on that. And so they were willing to kind of take a flyer on us. So I think that always was going to be the baseline of the revenue. We also knew that we wanted to have a subscription business, right? So we call our audience as members, which I think we really believe. We talk about it in every part of our business, right? Where we fundamentally believe that there's an ecosystem, particularly in Washington, where a reader might be a source, might come to an event, might be a sponsor. And we want to foster that, right? Like contact in Washington, I always say it's such a contact sport. You know, who's talking to who? What's the body language? And so we started with a $300 individual subscription. I think we quickly kind of saw that the way to scale that in a much better way was to have it be more of a B2B, you know, membership. So it's you, company X has 10 slots at $300 a year, right? It's just a much easier business model, sales model in terms of kind of predicting where your, your numbers are going to be. But we did. Oh, north of a million in our first year, which we felt like was really strong for us. And we have significantly grown that. And that was when we started, we didn't even have like a salesperson doing that. I think the biggest surprise for sure for us, because again, we we're coming out of COVID, right? And we, we launched Punchful News three days before January 6th is the kind of massive growth of our events business. I always thought we would do events. We had done them a lot at Politico. I had one, I had also run their women's leadership platform, which is really a global events business. But you know, we did roughly 40 events last year. Well, 
So that's a lot. Um, but these are why, like Washington has a different like events. It's so funny. <laughs> there's like Washington is like a different universe, really, from the rest of media in some ways. I mean, there's different people. Like, for instance, like I'm going to be going to Cannes in like a few weeks. You were there last year, yeah. so I can say it to you. Yeah. But like literally, they're very different worlds to some degree. Like the world of like, right? Like this, there's different ad buyers even in Washington, but then the events are very different because everyone like, Nobody in New York wants to go to a breakfast event. Like nobody. As far as I can tell, nobody does. Tell me if someone does, but I'll I'll put one on. I, we'll see. We'll have punchful news in New York soon enough. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Let's actually stick with events. Explain like the model you're doing because 40 is a lot, but I think Politico probably does like 400. I, I don't know. It's interesting. I mean, I think for us, the big thing that we do as we think about all of this stuff is like, what are our margins, right? So I think a lot of people do a lot of events, but they don't actually make a lot of money off of them. Yeah. We have kind of reverse engineered it where, you know, we are able to, we have one in-house person who does our events. We work with an outside or two kind of different firms that help us, but we do them at a very hopefully low cost and then can make up through it. And the other difference, I, I do think you're right that there is a much more of an appetite for convening in Washington is when we do them, I think we don't think of our events business as separate from our journalism. And so the event feeds the newsletter, feeds social media, feeds all of these things. And so especially when we started, there were four of us, like we couldn't do an event and then like not put it somewhere. Right. It wasn't like yeah. there's just, you know, all these people just sitting around doing this. Right. But I think it's just much more integrated into what yeah. we're doing. And so but, some of some of those are those editorial events you're talking about. But we do a lot of like parties, too. We do a lot of kind of high level. We have a townhouse as our headquarters where we do kind of breakfasts and things like that that are a little bit different than the traditional media company. OK, what is the revenue model for these kinds of events? Are you selling tickets or is it a sponsor? -driven? Sponsored. OK. Yeah. So typically walk me through Because I mean, a lot of the events that I see are like it's a newsmaker event and you have a newsmaker interview and then you have some euphemism for the sponsor interview view from the top or whatever. Oh, that's a very axios. That's, I, I don't know what it is. Everyone has a euphemism. Quoting, quoting the Jim Vandehei of it all? I call that, I sometimes mix in sponsor and I call it like yeah. spotlight episode. Whatever, we all have euphemisms. Fireside chat is usually how they... <laughs> fire Without a fire. Okay. They work for, for punchable news, yes. So we do that, which is, I think, really, like that's a typical format that a lot it has been going on for decades, right, here in town. Um, I think... The way that we've done them a little bit differently is this idea of smaller convenings where we want to kind of, we think our special sauce is public sector, private sector, nonprofit world, and getting people together in a room that don't typically get together. And so a lot of that, whether that's at our townhouse, um, whether that's at White House Correspondence Dinner, we had a big kind of kickoff lunch for 200 and some people. Um, but that's that's kind of our way of kind of, again, bringing our community together. And then they're always underwritten. Do you sell those like as packages with the newsletter sponsorships too? Because I mean, you I mean, one of the things with events that, and you guys are in a, again in like a particular area, but sometimes like events can take over like an organization very easily, depending on the kind of events you're doing. And then you become known as, as an events vendor and mm -hmm. you kind of don't want to do that if you're in the publishing business. Yeah. I think it can be both though. Like I think like, listen, our 
North Star is always going to be having that kind of pulse on what's happening with the yeah. leadership in Congress, right? Like the rest of it doesn't work without that. That is always going to be the most center piece of what we do. I think the events business can complement that. Oftentimes these are lawmaker interviews that we would want to have otherwise. But yes, oftentimes in terms of the the revenue model, they're sold as part of a bundle is how I would say. Yeah. And now on the on the sub slash membership mm-hmm. front, um, it seems like you've, you've moved emphasis from individual to enterprise B2B, however you want to call it, mm-hmm. but you're selling like groups. I mean, you know, running transactions, credit card, you just give Stripe a couple percents. It's like, yeah, it's great. But you're dinking and dunking your way down the field. And, you know, it, it can, it's a slow burn, like building subscriptions, like one at a time, you know, look, get a great charge out of, out of getting that, you know, Stripe confirmation. But at the same time, you're like, oh my God, can we speed this up? It's tough. A subscription business is not a glamorous, it's, it's not a glamorous yeah. place to be. I mean, it is, I think fundamental where we spend a ton of our time and focus is making sure that we're supporting that effort because, you know, I'm sure as you talk to folks, I listen to all the time, right? Reoccurring revenue is kind of king mm-hmm. in this world, right? It's not as, as subjective to the markets or industry, you know, rise or collapse in the same way that so many others are. But yes, definitely. I mean, we still have individual subscribers and that's wonderful. But I think where we kind of focus a lot of our time and attention is getting those you know, multiple people in through one corporate entity. And it definitely is where we see kind of our ability to to scale on that, to your point that it's just much harder otherwise. Yeah. And that is that that mostly is like a regular sale, like a, a salesperson has to like sell that rather than someone takes out like a credit card for three different or for 10, 10 seats. It depends. I mean, I think it depends on how com- some companies, I mean, you know, I mean, that's that's getting really in the weeds, but whether they're, you know, you've got a vendor onboarding or you have a, a company that's easier to expense 10 slots through one credit card. I think we try to be pretty flexible on that. I don't, the, the payment method is, you know, we'll work with you however we can to make it as seamless as possible. Yeah. I was mostly interested just in like, because I think one of the things you had said before is getting the size of the organization mm-hmm. right. Okay. Yep. I mean, like very different business, but, you know, we've seen like the messenger guy down and like hiring a ton of people saying that they're going to hit a, a really big number in, in some media alchemy. I'm not really sure, but it, in their first year. And, and that's, that's, a, that's risky. And I think we're seeing like evidence, at least I'm seeing evidence of people who getting the, the size of the organization right is important. And like, you have to craft your business model in such a way that you're not going to repeat the same problems the past, which, you know, infrastructure got way ahead of, of where the businesses were in a lot of these companies. I don't know how many VPs and SVPs and EVPs Vice had, but it was like north of like 200, uh, <laughs> just an estimate. And, and I think, you know, that it, it matters in some ways, like, because you guys have, have been able to not just grow quickly, but stay pretty lean. Like how big is the team overall? Yeah, totally. We, I mean, I think that's the big argument, right? Profitability profitability versus scalability, right? And so for us, profit is king. I think we want to scale. We are very ambitious. We are just under 20 people right now, but we're, we'll probably end up somewhere shy north of, of 20 by the end of the year. Yeah. But that's, I mean, you know, that's not that many, I don't think. Like, no, I, mean... I think for what we're doing in terms of size <laughs> yeah. and scale, for sure not. But I think like, you know, our culture, we think a lot about I don't know. I've worked at a lot of different places. Some of these places that don't exist anymore. I worked yeah. at Politico for 10 years. 
through a lot of different iterations of what it was was finally kind of becoming. And, you know, we're a company of doers. Like we always say that, like, like nobody should just be sitting in, I'm not sitting in meetings all day long, right? Like I think sometimes when you get to some of these bigger companies, you have a bunch of people that are just kind of meeting all day long, right? Everybody should have, should be contributing to the bottom line at the end of the day. Yeah. That's true. You do have this. So, although some days, you know, as a as a very small, <laughs> I'm like, you know, I I could kind of deal with a, a day full of meetings. <laughs> you know, just kind of zone out a little bit, say exactly. a few, yeah, just to build on what Jim is saying. <laughs> but that's not an option. So you're not going to tell me how much revenue you're expecting to get this year, right? I'm not. No. No, and not yet. I don't. Think I mean, come on, Jake was fun. He told me. I know, but that was a long time ago. That was that was we became we put that out. Um, I mean, I would listen. I think we've. It will, it will, it will be significant. I think we'll probably, we'll know more. You never, never uh, count your chickens before they're hatched. You know, yeah. I feel like at our where we're projected to be. But happy to talk about it once we, we, you know, we're a private company. That's the nice part about it. You don't I have to tell anybody guy, anything. But also, as a private company, you can do whatever you want. You can say the number. <laughs> See, well, I, I've seen that too. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I tried because people are like, oh, you got to ask. So yeah, of I'm, course. I'm, I'm doing my, I'm doing my job here. Because I mean, this is—it's working. Like from everything I can, we can see, it's working, right? And then you end up, like you said, coming to—you know—how much gas do you want to pour on? How do you want to expand? Yeah. How much are you going to emphasize profitability? Because you're going to end up inevitably to grow a business, you got to get ahead of revenue. Sometimes, I mean, like it's great to—you know—when I when I talk with Sean, you know, he talked about expanding into new markets and getting an advertiser to basically de-risk it by covering the launch of it for like six months. And I'm like, wow, you know, I, I would like to do that personally. if any advertisers want to do that, that's <laughs> me. How are you thinking about expansion? Cause I mean, you've moved into financial services. I think you guys have benefited quite a bit by your laser focus on Capitol Hill and not getting even, even going towards the white house. Yeah. Listen, I mean, I think a couple of things. I think Sean, I mean, he's built a tremendous business in some areas that are not necessarily, you know, the sexiest to some people. But I think that, again, having that focus, I think for us, I think he's smart. And I kind of agree with this, the strategy, right, which is to to de-risk, right? Like if, if we're going to go and make a big bet on something, I have to believe that there's advertising revenue. I have to believe that there's subscription revenue around it. It can't just be like, we're going to just try it out, Right. I think that maybe bigger companies have the benefit of of making, you know, a two-year play into video, for example, without an advertiser. Like we would never do that. Mm-hmm. And so I think when you look at the vault, which is our financial services coverage, I think you'll see us double down on that. We have the canvas, which is our kind of proprietary anonymous polling that we do of senior Capitol Hill staff that's verified, unlike anything that anybody else does. It isn't like an influencer poll, it's like actual verified staff directors, comms directors. You know, the people that are actually the, making the decisions behind the principles themselves. And I think you will see us go into other special edition areas as well. But I think to your point, like if you've looked at our coverage, we don't have 20 reporters on the ground, somebody covering Trump every day and DeSantis. And, and you're not going to see us do that. We don't think commodity journalism isn't for us. Like we're not we're not making money based on 29 million people looking at a story because it hits drudge. 
we care about the really, really most important people right in that bullseye mm -hmm. that that is why our advertisers or our, our readers, frankly, our members want to read it because they know that Mitch McConnell and they know that Hakeem Jeffries is reading this and they need to know what they, they're reading as well. Yeah. But like an obvious like area would be going doing the same thing for capitals in each state. That's a tough business model. I mean, you, if you look at Politico, for example, right, mm -hmm. or others, I think I think basing publications on just areas of, of having bodies on the ground is a really expensive proposition and probably unnecessary at this point. To me, I'm much more interested in power centers. So, you know, where are those people that maybe there's 50 of them in the, around the country, but they are gathering together? How can we get the, their mind share? So a good example of that is the U.S. Conference of Mayors was in Washington for their big annual conference. They'd never had an outside media partner come in. We worked them through kind of the process of it and how that could work. And we did an event there that was sponsored that also, so we were in front of a new audience that we would otherwise never get to be in front of. They got to have exposure to our audience that they would otherwise not necessarily have exposure to. And, you know, we were able to make, you know, ha have it underwritten by a corporate entity. So those are kind of the places where I think you'll see us play more in versus let's have somebody in California or Texas or New York covering state capitals. I mean, you could make an argument, right? I mean, you don't have to like do like North Dakota, but I mean, like I'm, California sets the, you know, they set a lot of regulations for this country at the end of the day. So I would guess that your clients are all devoting money to influence what happens in Sacramento or whenever whenever Austin meets, whatever those two weeks a year that they, they meet. I mean, that's the problem. I mean, I don't know what this person, maybe you just need a freelancer. Just in terms of <laughs> <laughs> part of it is the person that, you know, problem there. I think the, the market size is so much smaller, right? So I think it depends on how you, I mean, what's interesting what Axis is doing on the local level, because they're yeah. kind of trying to centralize things. So they only have to have a couple people. I think unless you really can be indispensable, like for us, that focus and being indispensable to our audience, I think is the biggest differentiator. Yeah. So I think ultimately with expansion, it's like, are you going to go broader or are you going to go deeper? Right? Like, yeah. I mean, you have, you can easily, I mean, not easily, everything is hard, but there's, there's a clear pathway to go deeper. Cause I mean, you talk about like memberships being incredibly important and $300 are going to have, you know, discounted whatever for, you know, bulk buys and stuff. That's great. But like five thousand dollars is way better, and you know, and there's tons of products in Washington that have proven out this model. I mean, Politico Pro is is obvious sure. is an obvious example. But I remember when I was down there, just like you know, hearing what like National Journal, I think it was, like was charging. I'm like, what? No way! No way! Nobody would actually pay that, right? People do, and it's a good business. Um, I just had on Bob Guterma from. The China Project, and they've got like a $5,000 subscription. So how are you thinking about narrow versus wider or deeper, I guess, versus yeah. wider? I would say definitely more, I think, deep, right? Mm -hmm. I think for us, why people come to us is because we're experts at what we do, right? I think unlike, so we felt like there was so much white space in the Capitol because so few reporters really want to be there for their whole career, right? They're there as a stepping stone to go to the White House or to go be a national political correspondent or go do something else, right? Whereas you look at the core of our team, it is all about what happens in the Capitol. I think what we are doing as financial services is a really good example of where we felt like if you turn on, you know, a lot of business cable news or you read some of the, you know, financial services industry kind of publications, 
it's all from a New York perspective and very little from a Washington perspective, right? It seemed very divorced from reality when you see what they were saying on a lot of eat the debt limit and so many other things. And so we felt like there was going to be regulation, there was going to be an interest in what was happening, and we could kind of better tell that story than anyone else. I think you'll see that in potentially other areas, but also just where do we see some of the the action and, and how can we, you know, of course, you know, either raise subscription rates or think about what, how does our, do we have a different level? How do we kind of get, bring more value to our members? You know, they're really bought in in a way that I don't think I ever experienced in journalism before. I think they feel like they have, you know, they're part of a truly a community in a way that, you know, we also, we survey them. We ask them all the time, what are you looking for? How, we started texting, for example. I don't know if you've seen that, but yes. for, our, for our premium community, which is something that I'm not saying that's revolutionary. You got to be really hardcore. I mean, because like, if you're getting if you're getting the email three times a day, and then you're just like Jonesy for a text too. I mean, you got to be it's really the really most hardcore. Popular. I'm telling you, we you know we, we and I think we we try to take a couple big swings a year, right? Like we we tried Slack channels, and that was like a little bit too crazy to do. And so I think texting has actually really been another way where they feel like there's a lot of value. We do brown bag lunches once a month where people yeah. can ask us direct questions. You know, I mean. There's a the sense of that you're really part of something, and that's something that we, we never want to lose sight of. Yeah. And so, I mean, you started with newsletters and also podcasts, too. But you're clearly, I mean, I think that's the fate of everyone. Like, you might start, to me, like, newsletters are great, minimally viable product, and they're amazing as a base. But inevitably, you know, you end up expanding beyond that. How do you end up thinking about that? There's more going on on the site. I'm seeing more. I was just watching a video that you did with Google. Oh, um, yeah. yeah. I was creeping on your LinkedIn and, and so on. I mean, we're, we were a newsletter first company. We're like unabashed yeah. about it. If you look at our homepage, punchable.news, you can sign up for our free morning newsletter. That's my, uh, my plug for all of your <laughs> listeners. But, you know, when you, when you look at it, it isn't a site that's meant to be drawing people in and, and having them kind of come back. I think that model is really tough to make work right now, right? We've seen that with so many different news organizations. Don't so, tell the messenger this. <laughs> I... You know, I we'll we'll see. I you know I'm 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 I want everyone in journalism to do well because I feel like competition is great for us. Honestly, not you in the doubter bucket. <laughs> I just try to be positive, Ryan. But I do think we do longer form. So I think one of the things we've done is these custom products because we don't do paid, just you know, kind of custom content in the way that traditional news organizations do. We really try to find pro- projects that we, as an editorial team, are also excited about. And so, well, you know one to four of those a year. And I, our editorial team really likes it because it's a way, instead of just having, to your point, the constraints of the newsletter of give me what you can in 250 words to be able to do long form, to be able to do video and to experiment in that way. But again, in the same way that Sean Griffey said, those are all underwritten by a corporate entity. So we're not kind of just taking a flyer that people are going to all of a sudden like this kind of content. Okay. And so with the with the financial services coverage, I mean, when I saw that, I thought, Okay, verticalizing makes a ton of sense, and you already have, you already have, you know, your clients are telling you which direction to go to some degree with the business if you're focused on margins, which I hope a lot of people are these days. Yeah. And obviously, I could see AI, I could see different. I mean, is verticalizing is is using that as a template at like one of the ideas for growth is like okay, if we can nail this, we can bring this to like five high value areas where we can already see in Salesforce or whatever CRM, like where our clients are sort of pointing us to some degree. 
And where the action is, you you know, at the end of the day. I think that's right. I mean, journals. listen, I don't, the idea is not to have, I, I, will, I think the thing you won't see us do is have 25 newsletters coming out every single day, right? Like yeah. no one to your point is looking for uh, a thousand more emails to go through. We already give people our, you know, kind of core audience three emails a day, which is a lot. And what's fascinating to me is Friday PM performs like just as well as, as Monday AM, right? I would have thought that over two and a half years, you'd see a huge dip in those people that are obsessed and they aren't. So that's kind of been really gratifying to see and to say like, okay, but there, there is an appetite to do more coverage. So yes, I think the vault, which is financial services for us is our, was Mm. our first kind of dipping the toe in, let's figure out how to do this, do it really well, do it in a way that works for our audience and our voice. You know, but finding talent that that is good at this kind of stuff and wants to do it in the way that we do it, I think is one of our challenges. Yeah. And and Canvas, I always thought Canvas was really interesting. Is, is that is that trying to get at a proprietary data product of some kind? I mean, it is a proprietary data product. I know, but when I say proprietary, I'm basically using a euphemism for like $5,000 a year. (laughs) You know, it's it's not out of the realm of possibility. I think for us, the canvas was really born out of the idea of polling kind of being broken. And that the fact that a lot of people came to us when we started saying like, because we had been at Politico, which has a big polling partnership with Morning Consult, which makes a ton of sense for them. And people were saying, oh, like you could do that with this. And for us, we're like, our value prop isn't a national poll, right? Like our value Mm -hmm. prop is what are the actual people that are kind of influencing what's happening in this town? What do they think? And no one could do that. And so we, it was a big risk because I don't think anybody in the news business had really tried it. But again, like I think that the people that do it really appreciate it. You know, I think that it also was, it's super predictive. If you look back over two years, even of, of where especially on the Hill, those people thought, the those senior staffers thought was going to happen, whether it was infrastructure or others, that everybody in the media business was like, oh, this is never going to happen. They were like steadfast and strong on both the R&D side on a lot of these issues. And it's pretty interesting to look back over the year. So a couple quick questions on the coverage area is the debt ceiling thing. I like tried to avoid it. If there was like a block, so I was like, I know they're just going to compromise the end. I know that you guys have to like be obsessed about it and everything like this. I'm just telling you from like the rest of the world, I'm like, this is all just kabuki theater. And ultimately, we're not going to go into default and mm-hmm. there's going to be some messy compromise. Nobody's going to be happy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I kind of feel like, you know, this is one of the last ones before like the campaign comes. And like you guys have been on a real roll, but you also started, you know, with January 6th, right? Yeah. And the action literally was at the Capitol when you started. The action is going to increasingly move to the presidential election. And that usually, I think, sucks a lot of the oxygen out of the room. And you're kind of not going to be in that, right? Or, or you're just going to try to be covering it from a congressional viewpoint? I mean, listen, I think in two and a half years, we keep thinking there's going to be a slowed period. And there hasn't been. So let's say we get through this debt limit, which I think we will. I, if you listen, if anybody listens to the, the Daily Punch, which is our podcast, I've kind of been in your camp of, I mean, we pay attention to a lot, but I've been like, I've been through the 2011. I mean, like we've seen yeah. this kind of before. But I think it depends on what happens with government funding. If they're going to try to do 12 spending bills, like they say they are now, that's a huge area of coverage for us. Yeah. FAA, we got the resortization. Like, you have to remember there's things that our audience cares about that okay. maybe wouldn't 
be the front page of the New York Times, right? I always say, like, if we're writing the same story that Times at the Post or the Journal or Politico even to some degree is writing, then, like, we've kind of lost our reason to exist. Okay. So, the, the sausage factory keeps operating. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay. And then I do think you will see we did, you know, we had a, a product called The Tally, which was around the midterm election that was all about kind of what was happening on the ground there. And I think you'll see that come back in a, in a big way in the sense of, like, where are the ad spending? You know, what are congressional leaders doing in terms of either endorsing Trump or not or DeSantis? I mean, I think there's a huge congressional story of where money goes, as well as kind of who gets into what camp, who's going to visit, you know, is, is Biden going to these kind of key Senate Democratic states or not? I mean, those kinds of storylines are there's a lot for us there. But I yeah, I mean, there is no doubt that, you know, in, in 24, it'll be a different time. And I think, again, then there's a lot of preparation in terms of what's the next Washington like? Is there changes in power? And I think there's a lot for us to cover there as well. Yeah. How are you seeing increased competition in this area? Because as I said before, you know, corporate affairs, what, what is what is the title? What do, what, what do you call it? You know, the things where people are like, regulate us, but not, don't regulate us totally. <laughs> you mean <know>, government affairs? <laughs> is it government affairs? Corporate affairs? So I mean, that's usually what most offices in town are. Again, it's a nice area because it's like one of the areas of advertising where you're not only not competing with Google and Facebook, you're actually taking their money. Oftentimes, it's like they you can't they can't compete for it. It's like wow, shouldn't all advertising be like this? <laughs> if only. It's kind of in some ways I'm reminded it's much smaller, but the for your consideration ads in Hollywood is another very lucrative. Jay, Jay Pensky knows that this is a very little lucrative area that he's he's cornered to some degree. And this hasn't escaped others' attention. Obviously, Politico, Axios, but now Semaphore is, you know, they really launched to me, that's really the locus of the business. I would assume the messenger wants it. I see I talk with people who are starting different newsletters in this area. It seems like there's a lot of people who want to get at that trough. Yep. Talk to me about like the increased competition that you're seeing. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. This is Washington hasn't, you know, I, I, for a long time, it's been a super competitive space, right? Like I remember being at Roll Call and when Politico came in and we we're like, there's no way, you know? <laughs> and then the kind of the pie got bigger. Our newspapers at exactly. every office. <laughs> exactly, right? And then I was at Politico for a long time and we left and I think, we launched and a lot of people were very skeptical that not that us as, as the, the news was going to be good, but that like there was going to be a business model that would follow. I think that unlike Semaphore or the messenger, we are not trying to be a, you know, especially the messenger trying to get millions and millions and millions and millions of mm -hmm. hits every day and kind of drive traffic and ads through that. And to some extent, I think Semaphore has this kind of global lens with which it's trying to create a, a space you know, I think for us, we are extremely focused and I think we benefit from it because our audience, I think, trusts us in a way that they don't trust either the legacy media or some of these other players who haven't been part of the ecosystem for a long time. We just did an event and the member of Congress said, you know, I wake up and read you all because now I know then I know what's actually going to be happening. Right? right. I mean, I was like, can I record this actually? <laughs> this could be our advertisement. <laughs> but like, this is the kind of, you just have a buy-in. And, and and I would say the other thing that is a huge differentiator, and we we pay extremely close attention to it, which is we are read by just as many Republicans as we are Democrats. And that's a huge impact, especially as companies are and advertisers are looking to make a bet about who's reading your content. So many legacy publications in the post-Trump 
in kind of through Trump, mm. well, you know, fair or not fair. I, I'm not saying that it is fair, but I think I have been perceived by a lot on the right as being, you know, unfair and the kind of in the bag for Democrats. And I think we benefit from the fact that like that just hasn't been our ethos. I think we call balls and strikes and, you know, we have to face those people every single day up on the hill. And when you do that, it's really it's you don't just kind of spout off for, for no reason at all. Yeah. So final thing is, is what's it been like being a journalist turned CEO? It's a totally different gig. <laughs> I'll tell you that much. <laughs> I think being a journalist is, is at least my career has been very entrepreneurial. So yeah. building a beat, building a source, taking on different products, particularly at Politico, I think was the training ground for a lot of what I do now. But, you know, it, well, which parts, which parts of it? Because I do think there's some, some things that that carry over. Yeah, oh, in terms of carrying over, in terms of journalism to entrepreneurship? Yeah. I mean, I think that a lot of reporting is charm, disarm, get people to tell you stuff that could get them fired, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of business is charm, understand their problems, and find a pathway for them to feel like you're going to help them with their problems, right? And so in a lot of ways, it's it's pretty similar in terms of that. But I think in terms of leading an organization, you know, it's a, I mean, I'm, you know, I had never looked at a PL. I had, we have investors, we have, you know, I'm the fiduciary of our 401k, we have healthcare, we have, I mean, there's just a lot of things that I feel like my kind of just whole focus has, has shifted a lot. But it's exciting. And I love the product part of it. I love coming up with products. I love thinking about what's the best way to launch things, really feeling like I, I feel like I have a real sense of our audience in a way that that's really exciting is the idea of being small and saying, I have an idea. All right. Is it a good idea? Then how do we get to yes in a pretty quick way versus being in a larger organization? It's just much harder. You know, it's six months of meetings and middle management and people. And then ultimately, like, is it does it meet someone's KPIs or not? Like, we don't have to think about that. Yeah. But like, I mean, you talk about like being entrepreneurial, but then being a CEO is like different. Right. So like <laughs> what, what surprised you about that part? Like that's either you know, been positive or like, mm-hmm. wow, this is a lot harder than I would have thought of. Motivating people. Like, I think I had always had a lot of dotted yeah. lines to people, but I think I enjoy the concept of like, how do you get people to their best possible outcomes in terms of work, which is exciting. I think what's hard is that when you go from four to 20 is I can't be making all of you can't be doing all of the things. And so learning how to delegate is, I think, crucial and also understanding some things aren't going to be done the way that you would necessarily do them. And that's also OK, you know? Yeah. But I think the best and the thing that I'm the most proud of, especially on the editorial side, is bringing in some of the folks that we brought in, either you know, you go to Max Cohn, who came in basically right out of college, or Andrew Desiderio, who's come over from Politico and is like really creating this next generation of talent. You know, Jake and John and I have like we've I've I've done all the things that I need to do to like feel like I've been, you know, a, a star reporter. And so mm-hmm. if we can instill in them and also elevate them. It's kind of exciting to to be a part yeah. of. And and also building a brand that's beyond mm-hmm. like, you know, because I think that a lot is made out of like, quote unquote, personal brands and stuff like that. And, you know, I think that can be a, a good impetus to, to building, you know, regular institutional brands. But, you know, having it tied to like a couple of individuals is, you know, it's risky. It is. Hopefully, and the goal is we're building something much bigger, though, right? And I think if you look at even just the the, the branding of, of the colors and the events and the, that kind of stuff, I also really like. Like, I think what we're trying to do is create something certainly bigger than, you know, the three of us plus Rachel Schindler, our other, yeah. you know, co-founder. I mean, I think is, you know, this is 
we're here to last. Like this isn't just a let's try to have this as a vanity project. You know, I think we feel like we've kind of been able to build something really thoughtfully and hopefully are looking at the next, you know, three, five, ten years about what that looks like. Okay, well, let's come back in a year when you're ready to divulge the numbers. All the numbers. I'll be future. (laughs) I love it. All right. Thank thank you. you so much. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Anna. This podcast was produced by Jay Sparks at Pod Help Us. You too can get a podcast. Just visit podhelp.us. Again, we'll be back on Monday with a series of podcasts. It's going to be Monday through Friday with these podcasts. By, by Friday, my voice is going to be hoarse, and so the episodes will probably be shorter. But really looking forward to Can Again, if you're going... Please do join us. We've got three days of programming at the Curve Cafe, Monday through Wednesday from noon until 3 p.m. We're also doing a cocktail party at the very same Curve Cafe on Monday between 3 and 5. And we also have a cocktails and conversation event we are doing in partnership with Dot Dash Meredith at their villa. The Rebooty does not have a villa this year, at least. That is on Thursday from 4 until 6. I'm going to be interviewing Neil Vogel, fellow Philadelphia sports fan, about about all sorts of different topics, but in particular, I want to hone in on AI and how it's not a threat to a business like Dot Dash Meredith's. Anyway, it's going to be a great conversation. I always like talking with Neil. So if you are going to Cannes, again, you can find out more information about all these events on therebooting.com, and I'll leave links in the show notes if you don't want to go to the site. 